everyone, and welcome to the Voris at Work podcast. I'm Jackie Ford. I'm a partner in the Labor and Employment Group at the Voris Law Firm and the host of our podcast. Our topic for today is employment issues in the gig economy. We'll talk about what the gig economy is and why really every employer ought to be keeping an eye on the growth of this kind of work structure whether you're currently using so-called gig workers or not. Now, joining me in the conversation today is my friend and law partner, Nelson Carey. Nelson is a partner in the Voris Columbus office who focuses on labor law issues, and he's also the editor of the Voris on Labor blog. Nelson, welcome to the podcast. Jackie, thank you so much. Uh, great to be here. Now, you guys listening should know that Nelson and I used to have offices right next door to each other, which for me was a great benefit because every time I had one of these labor questions that I needed another set of eyes or ears about, I had Nelson as a resource right next door. And we no longer have uh, directly adjacent offices, but uh, I, I welcome the opportunity to talk with you even in this way today, Nelson, because uh, I think you're such a, a, a great resource and uh, this this will be a good conversation. So. One of the reasons Nelson and I wanted to talk about the gig economy on our podcast is that we've both found that we've been hearing more and more from clients who are using gig workers in fields that used to be staffed by employees, uh, you know, rather than contractors, or by workers maybe supplied from a temp agency or some other service. But now some of those same services are being provided not by employees or temp services, but by individual gig workers. Um, and like so many other things, there's an app for that. There are at least two dozen apps that employers can use to find different types of gig workers who then work for you on an independent contractor basis. Apps like um, Upwork and Freelancer.com and many others. And of course, even Uber itself, as you might know uh, or anticipate, it also has a service for connecting with freight drivers who are owner operators. So lots of ways that this gig economy that we think about, maybe primarily in terms of things like Uber and Lyft, are really making their way into the much broader um, business sector. So before Nelson and I get into more of a, a conversation about the legal issues, I just want to start by defining some terms. Um, by gig economy, what we mean is an environment where the workers are performing work in short-term assignments, typically um, on an independent contractor basis. Again, Uber and Lyft, um, Grubhub, TaskRabbit, those are services you're probably familiar with. Um, and a lot of that gig economy does seem to focus on things that involve a car or a truck um, that gets hired on a, on a gig basis. Um, but we're also seeing it getting into other areas, you know, software development, for example. Um, Nelson, is that what you, you've been seeing and hearing, too, in terms of the breadth of, of what we're seeing in the gig economy? Very much so, Jackie. It seems that uh, every day or week that goes by, uh, there's another app that comes out with another take on uh, the gig economy approach and, and to connecting uh, workers with work opportunities, uh, whether uh, day-long, hour-long, or weeks-long type of situations. And, and those types of uh, situations raise a number of legal issues, I think, for 
the user employer, the user entity. Uh, we're not going to be able to get into all of them today on the podcast, uh, as I think you know, Jackie, but they're going to th- include things like tax withholding and wage hour issues and disability accommodations, just to name a few. And I think the one that we're going to talk about most arises out of the unionization context, but certainly we see those types of issues and and there's a lot of legal issues that the user employer has to confront Uh, that's certainly been my experience as well sounds like yours jackie that's that's exactly right and um and that's only going to get bigger right i mean that that is a trend that is certainly not going away and as as you and i will get into in a minute here these issues really are important to understand whether you as an organization are currently using so-called gig workers or not because it just touches on so many other aspects of the law of employment and the law of independent contractors more broadly. Um, so, you know, you and I, Nelson, are certainly getting the sense from from clients and others that this is a growing part of the economy. How big is it? How many gig workers are there? It's it's a tough thing to measure, but I took a look, and you know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics and some others have been looking into this and found that you know, as many as a quarter of all Americans who work in any way are getting some portion of their income from the gig economy. It could be, you know, a school teacher who drives for Uber on the weekends, or it could be someone who's a full-time photographer working on a gig basis and, and everything in between. The Bureau of Labor Statistics estimates that somewhere around 10% of American workers are earning 100% of their income from the gig economy. So it's not a small thing. And with all that as background, Nelson, let's talk about the legal aspects of gig work. I know you've been studying this and talking to clients about it. So let's start first with what's probably the biggest gig economy story, uh, at least in regards to labor law right now, which is this recent decision from the NLRB uh, general counsel. Can you walk us through that? Sure. Well, the NLRB General Counsel is sort of the prosecutor, if you will, for unfair labor practice cases uh, under the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, And the General Counsel from time to time will issue what are called advice memorandum or advice memoranda. The General Counsel issues these uh, to give instructions to the regional offices about what types of cases should be prosecuted. Uh, That is a complaint issued on the unfair labor practice charge and which types of cases should not be. And the recent one you mentioned is getting a lot of uh, attention uh, and is, you know, deals with a, a, a brand that we all deal with uh, on, well, for me anyway, any, every business trip I go on, Jackie. Uh, and that is the Uber uh, General Counsel's memorandum. Uh, the case arose out of a, a three different unfair labor practice charges that had been filed against Uber over the course of a few years. And they'd been filed in different parts of the country. And they were all sent together to the general counsel's office in Washington, D.C. for advice and, and direction as to how the uh, case should proceed. Uh, so it arose in the unionization context. But the lessons, I think, that we can learn from it apply both in and out of that context. At issue in the uh, general counsel's memo was a core question or the core question of whether the drivers are independent contractors under the National Labor Relations Act. Now, the NLRA itself 
in the definition, the statutory definition of the term employee excludes the term independent contractors. So if a person's determined to be an independent contractor under the NLRA, then they're not protected uh, by that statute and their right to organize a union is likewise not protected by federal law. Uh, and this is an area that's seen a pendulum effect over the years. You know, Jackie, as we sometimes see in the regulatory environment, depending on which party uh, is in the majority on the National Labor Relations Board will determine the direction or the general tenor in which the um, cases come out, either more friendly to unions or more friendly to management. There's a lot of inside baseball here about the test that was applied by the general counsel, uh, but listeners with a particular interest can check out my blog post on a case called Super Shuttle. Uh, it was issued earlier this year by the National Labor Relations Board uh, and a predecessor case involving FedEx, and that's on voriesonlabor.com, the blog to which you referred at the top of the podcast, Jackie. Well, you know, and that's a good point, Nelson. That blog really is a great source of information on, on this subject and, and many others in, in regard to labor law. So we will uh, make sure that we have a link to that blog post on the podcast website. That'd be great. I appreciate that, Jackie, because I think it does have some of the background information that the listeners to the podcast today want to take a deeper dive on this issue uh, could certainly dig into. But for now, the law we'll look at is that set forth in the super shuttle decision. And the board in that case determined that the opportunity for entrepreneurial gain was the what the board called the animating factor in the independent contractor test. So the NLRB is going to apply a 10-factor independent contractor test that really comes from the common law. But when it looks at those factors, what it's going to do is particularly look for how they all play in connection with the worker's ability to make money that exceeds what the worker could make if simply paid for her time on an hourly or salaried basis. The idea is to think of the worker as, or to gauge whether the worker is, running his or her own business or has an opportunity for profit like a business owner running a small sandwich shop or hair salon or whatever the case might be. And like it does in various industries, the NLRB applies refined or specialized tests in certain industries, and the ride sharing and the taxi or limo industry is one of them. And so it looked at three key factors. Uh, one was the control by Uber of the driver's daily work. The second was the method of payment. And then the third was kind of a catch-all, you know, any other factors that seem to be relevant in that particular industry. And what the general counsel determined is that the Uber drivers were independent contractors. With respect to control, the general counsel found that Uber had limited control of a driver's daily work. So the general counsel cited the fact that the Uber driver could set their own schedule. They could pick their own geographic locales within a larger metropolitan area in which they wanted to work. And they could even work for competitors. I don't know about you, Jackie, but I've seen the car drive up that has both the Lyft and the Uber sticker on it, uh, and it just depends on which app platform they were working on is why they're showing up to pick you up. Um, and in terms of the method of payment, uh, the uh, general counsel observed that typically uh, when workers are paid a percentage of a fee or other type of income that they receive for doing the work, that is usually more indicative of employee status. 
contrast that with a flat fee arrangement. And that was the situation in that super shuttle case. In that case, the drivers were paid a, paid a flat fee to the super shuttle franchise, essentially. And they were able to keep anything that exceeded that fixed weekly fee that they paid to super shuttle. Uh, in Uber's situation, though, the drivers uh, are paid a percentage of the fare that's charged on the app platform. The general counsel here, though, found that that did not alter the outcome that the drivers should be independent contractors. And that's because while the percentage charge created an incentive for Uber to exercise control over how the driver performed uh, his work, the Uber did not actually exercise that level of control. And so because there wasn't any actual control over the work, uh, as it had previously found, it found that the method of payment was a neutral factor at best in its analysis. And then finally, some of the other factors that supported independent contractor status the general counsel cited involved the fact that the driver provided what the uh, lawyer word is, is the instrumentality for the work, uh, namely the car, <laughs> in order to drive for Uber, uh, and the driver paid all the expenses for that car. Another uh, factor that the general counsel looked at to support his decision was that Uber didn't sufficiently supervise the drivers. Now, Uber imposed some minimum standards, but the general counsel found that those were mainly for brand protection purposes and were customer driven. In other words, they only became an issue if a customer complained about the service that the Uber driver provided uh, or there was some other issue. There was no boss or no uh, manager out on the road following the Uber driver around, making sure that they did the job according to how Uber wanted the job done. A number of those are really interesting points for, for people to remember. Um, the second of the three about control, exercise of control versus possible exercise of control. Um, it's interesting to see the NLRB is shifting, as you said earlier, it's shifting directions again and going back in the direction of, you know, not so much uh, speculating whether the uh, business owner could have control over the contractor, but whether the business owner actually exercises that control. So that, that could be a really important one, I think, going forward. And the other one uh, is the first one, which is having uh, limited control of the driver's daily work and allowing the driver to work for um, other entities, including competitors. Um, and as you say, it's not unusual to get into uh, an Uber and see an ad for Lyft or see that the Uber driver has both Uber and Lyft stickers on the car. Of course, then there was my incident the other night that I mentioned to you, Nelson, I was leaving work, <laughs> got in my car to drive home, was stopped at a stoplight in front of a restaurant, and while I was sitting there in my car, which I hasten to add is not an Uber or Lyft car, um, a gentleman came over and tried to get into my car, apparently thinking that I was the Uber driver he was waiting for. So uh, certainly an awkward and potentially dangerous incident, but also one that just reminds you that, again, this gig economy is, is very, very broad, and uh, sometimes there's a, there's a presumption that it's there even when it's not. Um, but, but getting back to this case about Uber, um, yeah, it's specific to drivers, but there are certainly a lot more general lessons that um, all business owners and employers uh, across the board can take from the case. What do you think 
um, Nelson, are some of the more um, general or important lessons that, that folks can take away from this recent decision? So Jackie, I think the two most important takeaways are, number one, what's your contract look like through which you're securing these services? And number two, what does your actual course of dealing, we might put it in lawyer terms, but the actual way in which you're implementing that contract look like? With respect to the contract, I think that it's important to have a some sort of documented relationship with the worker or with the entity providing the worker. Uh, and that contract should highlight things like we saw in the Uber decision, the fact that the individual is permitted to work for others, the fact that the individual has to uh, indemnify the user for various expenses or risks that might arise. That's actually found in the Uber agreement between Uber and the drivers in which there's an indemnification provision about things that could happen while someone's driving that the driver indemnifies Uber for. And then finally, and this was something that we saw in the super shuttle case, is restrictions on transfer. So in that situation, the super shuttle was granting uh, opportunities, basically franchises to drivers to drive. And if the driver got tired of driving for super shuttle, there was a process by which that driver could shift the franchise or their right to drive for super shuttle over to another person. And the fewer restrictions that a employer or user puts on that transfer of what becomes a business asset of a independent contractor, uh, the better off you're going to be in terms of independent contractor status. With respect to the daily practice, I think that it's important that users not put managers who are or might have the tendency to micromanage in charge of managing or running an operation that requires or relies upon independent contractors. The surest way, I think, through the case law, especially the NLRB, to convert an independent contractor to an employee is for the manager to micromanage her work. Another daily practice issue is going to come back to that payment approach. Is it a flat fee? The more opportunities you can have for flat fee type of payments and arrangements, the better off that you're going to be. I think, Jackie, the one note of caution I would have here is for employers not to overreach. It's one thing, I think, to use an app-based platform to obtain a ride or to get a plumber to fix your sink or someone to prepare your garbage disposal or something like that. It's quite another, I think, to use an app-based marketplace to obtain a person who's going to come into your facility, use your equipment and tools to accomplish a job that looks a lot like what you pay people that you admit to be employees to accomplish. Those two are, I think, fundamentally different. And so I think that the lesson for employers here, or for users of folks that may be independent contractors, to keep in mind is to watch that overreach. I think that last point is such an important one because there's always this tension, right, between I want to ensure quality in the way services are provided to or on behalf of my company. And the way I want to do that is to have supervision over those who are providing those services. But if that supervision turns into micromanagement, as, as you've correctly, I think, described it, that's when you really start bleeding into uh, losing that 
um, independent contractor gig worker status and ending up in employment status with all the risks that go with that if you haven't been appropriately treating that person as an employee, withholding, paying overtime, providing benefits, and so on. So the risks of getting it wrong um, are significant. And, you know, I do think the reason this is drawing so much attention, this particular decision and, and the broader conversation, is that it's part of a much larger public policy conversation about the rise of the gig economy. You know, a lot of gig workers say they prefer working that way because they like the independence, they like the flexibility, but others say, you know, hey, as gig workers, again, we're not employees, so we're not getting the benefits of employment like health benefits over time, um, disability accommodations if, if we're, you know, unable to work or we need accommodations in order to work. Um, and there have started to be some legislative responses to some of that. Um, in California, for example, there's a new law on the books that uh, is specific to cannabis companies. Um, but as we see more and more states uh, legalizing various forms of marijuana, presumably this kind of regulation will also grow, so to speak. Uh, and in, in California, the new law that's on the books has to do with delivery drivers. You know, a lot of the gig economy is about driving and trucking. And um, California passed a law saying, look, if you're transporting cannabis products, you do have to be employed by uh, the cannabis uh, grower or, or distributor um, for reasons of public safety, uh, reasons of law enforcement, and so on. So we may start to see a little bit more regulation that way as a response to the gig economy. But mostly, I think, Nelson, you're, you're right on point that this is going to be part of an evolving you know, shifting slightly here and there with, with coming and going um, administrations uh, about, you know, what is uh, the proper standard for evaluating whether someone is an independent contractor. I guess one sort of final piece of advice, just general legal principle for folks to keep in mind when they're thinking about these gig workers and their own use of them is, you know, and you, you kind of raised this a moment ago, Nelson, you know, if you have workers who are employees doing something similar to what you have independent contractors doing, there will always be a question about that. And the starting point in any challenge is, is the default rule, which is that people who are providing services for you are presumed to be employees unless you, the quote-unquote employer, can demonstrate that, no, they're, they're not employees. They're actually independent contractors of some form or another. So you know, this gig economy and use of contractors is only going to grow, uh, but along with it, I think the legal uh, potential pitfalls will grow as well. So we would really encourage all of you to stay on top of these issues um, as that process continues. And you have a couple of ways you can do that. One is to make sure you're subscribing to uh, to the blog that Nelson edits, the Voris on Labor blog, um, and of course to subscribe to our podcast series as well. And if you have any questions about this or other employment issues, um, we'd certainly be happy to talk with you about them. You can contact Nelson or I through the Voris.com website or, of course, connect with any other member of the Voris Employment Group. Nelson, I just want to thank you for a great conversation today. Uh, I learned some things, and I hope our audience did as well. So thank you all for listening. And now let's get back to work.